0: Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and Medhab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm here with Dr. Brian Abelson. He is a chiropractor, a multidisciplinary practitioner, I think is a better term to use for him. And he has just released a new book called Release Your Body Resolving Plantar Fasciitis." He's co-authored it with his wife, Kamali Abelson. And very pleased to have him. He's uh, residing and practicing in Calgary, Canada. Say hello to the audience, Brian. Hi,
1: Richard. I hope you're doing well today.
0: I'm uh, doing well. So, let's just go ahead and uh, attack this. So, plantar fasciitis, what a, a nasty, nasty little bug. Uh,
1: absolutely. Probably, probably one of the most common things that I see in my clinic on a daily basis, actually. Uh, like you, I've been in the, uh, involved in the running community for many years now, and uh, it, it's just such a common thing.
0: Well, the, the problem I think, and I think that you've done a really nice job in your book incidentally, bringing it to light, because a lot of people tend to be so focused on where we see pain, and a lot of times we are so focused on that particular epicenter that we're not really looking at the cause relative to the effect in the relationship of the of the problem.
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. This is such an interesting condition that way. Um To really explain it, I mean, we get people that are young, that are old, that are inactive, that are active. Uh, We have a lot of different reasons why this condition comes on. And because there's such a cross-section of individuals, we really have to say, you know, what is the reason we're we're getting such an incidence of this condition? And if we really look into it deeper and we consider other things besides just local areas, we we come up with actually a, a very good hypothesis on how to treat this.
0: Well, and it's interesting to me because, again, I'm on the the front line here, so to speak, where, you know, as a running coach and doing gait analysis on runners, and I find very commonly that there are issues that are further up the kinetic chain that never even occurred to the the injured uh, runner. Right, right. And and typically where I find a lot of this is resident in the calf muscle. But beyond that, as as, as you very eloquently point out in your book, a lot of this is also resident in the tibialis, in the front of the legs.
1: Um, wide variety of things, absolutely. I mean if we have a problem, as you mentioned, some of the most common things would be uh, restriction on the lateral part of the calf, uh, subtalar joint in, in the ankle, at the ankle joint. But if we start looking into, I would consider the tibialis almost a local issue in some ways because it's the antagonist to the calf muscle. So if it gets tight, Uh, It's just like trying to contract my my bicep. If my bicep is going to contract correctly, my tricep has to relax. If my shins are tight, the tibialis, then that's going to basically impede the function of the calf muscle. what we refer to neurologically as reciprocal inhibition. So it's really interesting when you start getting into these relationships.
0: You know, uh, what I really enjoyed, and by the way, I was just listening to or actually looking at one of your YouTube videos, and I think it was um, the little release you did. Preempting your book, right? right. But uh, what I really, really liked, and I don't know whether it's it's yours or whether where you've got it from, but the term, tensegrity, which is essentially, if I'm not mistaken, tension and integrity.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And no, no, that's uh, definitely not from me. That's uh, from Buckminster Fuller, and uh, he was quite a character, actually. I think he was around until about 1982. Uh, If you go back even as far as uh, Expo 67 and we look at the geodesic dome from there, that was one of uh, Buckminster Fuller's design. It's really an interesting concept because when we look at tension integrity, well, well, first of all, if we think of our body and we think of uh, tension integrity, rigid structures held together by tension, that would be our muscles, ligaments, tendons. So the rigid structures being our bones, if we think if we got rid of all of the tension lines, uh, what would happen to our bones? They just fall apart and hit the ground. Uh, So it's really interesting because when we start looking at this, we start to get a better concept in terms of how bodies actually react and where problems can come from. Um, An analogy which I commonly use is comparing it to squeezing a balloon. Uh, If we consider a balloon, our whole body or a section of the body, and we squeeze one side of the balloon, obviously that side starts to compress and the other side starts to expand. Now, if I start pressing further and further and further until I actually get a rupture in the balloon, we'll see that the area where the rupture took place is the weakest link in that chain. And this is far away from the area that was actually causing the stress or compression on the structure. So the same thing applies in the body. Where we think the problem is coming from is often not even close to the area.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I see that often where we you know we we get into a, a habit and it's compensatory a lot of times, where maybe you initially, uh, for example, banged your knee on a coffee table and for the course of the following week because you're you've got this low grade injury you favor your leg a little bit and you almost develop or not almost but you can potentially develop these compensatories that cause you to change the way you move and then everything's out of kilter so to speak and then you start developing imbalances and problems that that result in in bigger and bigger problems right
1: absolutely absolutely I mean, and also refer to, like you started to talk about the calf muscle and you're saying that's a common thing, but we also have to look at the connections in the body. I started talking about lines of tension, this whole concept of tensegrity. Well, those lines of tension, we're not talking just local areas. We have to look at it and say, you know, how, how much are we actually connected? So we take the example of plantar fasciitis, one of the common ones uh, to refer to the work of several people, actually. There's uh, Thomas Myers from Anatomy Trains. Uh, there's the Stuccos. Uh, in, in Italy, they it's amazing, amazing work in terms of dissection. And actually, when they dissect something out, they don't just dissect out the muscles. They actually try and keep all the connections between different structures. And so, for example, in the case of plantar fasciitis, they'd say, okay, we're going to look at the posterior line. So they would look at and they would see how the bottom of the foot or the plantar fascia, which goes from the toes to the heel, connects in underneath and actually attaches on to where the Achilles tendon is. Of course, Achilles tendon is formed from the two calf muscles. That connects up, connects into the hamstrings, connects into the pelvis, an area called the dorsal sacral ligament, and then basically connects all the way up the entire back. So it's kind of like having this strong connection. is like having a sheet in your hand. If you pull one end of the sheet, obviously the other end of the sheet is going to start to tug. So everything is totally connected. We, we can't separate one area from the next.
0: That's true. Now, and and at the end of the day, the the global issue is that we're always at ends with gravity, and the ground beneath us right so yes, we're basically the oreo cookie we were the white stuff in the middle right right and mm-hmm. so um being able to maintain our integrity through strength training and functional exercise we are going to be in a better place to to keep things in proper alignment and uh mm-hmm. and create the uh integration we're looking for right
1: oh absolutely i mean we have to look at the quality of our tissue. Do we have good flexibility? Uh, do we have scar tissue buildup? Or do we have the strength to actually you know, maintain and basically promote whatever uh, functional action we're trying to do? Um, as you're probably well aware, individuals who pronate and supinate a lot uh, usually have weak hips. Uh, there's a lot of research that's been done, I, th- I think over 300 some studies now, showing the correlation between lower extremity instability and hip strength.
0: Right, absolutely. And, you know, but let me offer this, uh, and I have a couple thoughts on my mind, but when we talk about structural integrity, yeah, and when I think in terms of dynamic function and structural integrity, so as we're running down the road, the way we run has much to do with how our body responds to the forces that we generate. And so by overstriding, heel striking, late stage pronation, all these things that we do dynamically are what lend us to this bad place to begin with. So I tell people a lot of times when they ask me about what type of exercise they should be doing in order to develop hip strength, because they, they have been told many times that that is essentially where the weakness is in okay. in, in their mm-hmm. structure. I tell them that if they land appropriately under center of mass as they run, that in itself is a very dynamic and functional exercise. Would you agree with that?
1: I would. I mean, if they're landing midfoot strike, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, you land on your toes, land on your heel. You're basically just setting yourself up for an injury. Uh, you, you have not given your uh, a body chance to actually um, decrease the stresses in the plantar fascia. We have what is called the windlass mechanism. And uh, I guess one of the easiest ways to explain this is to compare it to um, if we have a, a tube covered with cable and we do have a crank on it and we crank away there. We use it for raising large loads. The same thing applies to our foot. We, actually, we think of the structure of that, that round cylinder as being the bones of our body. And then we think of the plantar fascia or the muscles as being these cables underneath there. When we, um, uh, basically when the plantar fascia is loose, it's very resilient and then with each weight-bearing force, we push our foot down, it actually tightens up and it's like a shock absorption mechanism. Well, if the different structures throughout the foot are not working correctly or we have restrictions or you don't have the strength in the area, this mechanism is not going to work correctly. There's actually a lot of things that can actually uh, debilitate and um, change the way the the function of this windlass mechanism works but um, certainly lack of strength, flexibility are, are key components.
0: So on that thread, and going back to what I initially said about, you know, the fact that we're at ends with gravity and the ground beneath us, when, you know, I, I've recently done a show with uh, Dr. Emily Spleco, and I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's a podiatrist out of uh, New York.
1: Yes. And okay. she,
0: she has a program called Evidence-Based Fitness, and she teaches barefoot training, not, yes. so, not so much for running, per se, but to essentially develop the integration and the uh, sensory feedback or afferent feedback that comes from the ground into the body and train the body to adapt to the forces that we generate, right? Yes, yes. And so here's the rant, and I I just want to get your feedback on it. I don't want to get too far off point, but I I, I see this as a relationship uh, in where a lot of people these days relative to what the running shoe industry has caused us to uh, look at or be brought into with this trend, they're getting into cushier and cushier and thicker soles. And I'm under the understanding that the more uh, density or more material we put between us and the ground beneath us, it, it starts to dampen the feedback that we're hoping to gain from the ground and this in itself, causes us to be a little ignorant in respect to how our body should react to the ground forces that we're we're imposing. What are your thoughts on that? I mean and I'm not going to sit here and say that' I'm, I'm interested in barefoot running or you know getting to a really minimal shoe, but I, I'm just I, my mindset is and, and, and until I find out a better a be, better rationale for it that we need less material between us and the ground, and we're better suited to learn to react to ground forces rather than to dampen them.
1: I agree with everything you say that we need to increase the appropriate sector of activity. We we need to actually get used to running with minimal support. And you're absolutely right. The more we put underneath our foot, the more we're going to dampen our feedback mechanisms. On the other hand, I also think it's important that when we make this conversion from, if if we're used to running on a lot of, um, basically cushioned between us and the ground and then we change it too fast, we're going to run into problems. I think that, you know, building up strength in the foot, the barefoot training is excellent, uh, something I try to get my own patients to do all the time. But I think the conversion has to be fairly slow to a degree. I mean, not so slow that, uh, you know, it's taking you know, six months or something. But at the same time, I, I see some patients that go from uh, running on very cushioned shoes to minimal support in distance that are, are way too much for them initially. But, no, I, th- I think it's a very good approach you're talking about, is going towards minimal support shoes. I think this is um, – we'll probably see this in the future a lot more, and I think a lot of the current uh, views that individuals have about needing a certain level of required cushioning um, will change completely.
0: Well, I'm hoping so, because I, I know that the-, the the whole trend towards uh, cushier shoes has really taken hold, and a lot of people are, are- – are drinking that Kool-Aid, and I think that it causes them to be more irresponsible with the way they move, where if they learn to run more appropriately, that they're going to have less potential injuries down the road. Right, right. And I agree with you 100%. Transitioning from a really uh, steep so, uh, heel or a shoe that's got way too much cushion beneath it to a minimal shoe is a really bad idea because there's just too much transition too early. You're, you're absolutely destined to hurt yourself, especially if you ha- you've got a really tight calf to begin with. Uh, so, uh, I, One of the shows I did back in the day with uh, Jay Desherry, I don't know if you're familiar with Jay, but – He's a physical therapist. He's in uh, Bend, Oregon, and he runs a, 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 a gait lab there, actually a couple of them. Uh, and he, what he tells people is that if you sit in a chair with your uh, feet planted in front of you on the ground at about 90 degrees from, from knee through the hip, that if you start to slide your knees forward or scoot your, your butt uh, further forward on the chair, if you start to find that your, your heels lift off the ground, before your knee gets past your great toe, yes, yeah. then okay. it's probably not a good idea to shift to a zero-drop shoe.
1: Okay. Um, I think over a period of time, though, with that test, just my opinion, that if we actually worked on flexibility and range of motion over a period of time, that the results from that test would change. Oh, I agree. Yes. Yes. So what you're saying is, as the person develops their flexibility, then then it'll be time to actually move into that shoe. Otherwise, don't do it. You're setting yourself up for an injury. That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Right. I think it's a great test actually. Yeah.
0: Right. So um, let's talk about. And incidentally, I, I, let me just give you a, a, a personal antidote here. I, I've got a client that that um, when I met him. He was rolling around, and I used the pun "rolling around" because he was in those. Uh, I think they call it MTBs, where you know they're fatter underneath the midsole. Oh
1: yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Right.
0: So when that was really a fad, he he got into those because his argument was when he was young, he uh, had a motorcycle accident and he's got a pin in his ankle or, or it screwed his ankle up. I don't know whether he's got a pin in there or not, but okay. Um, and then he started having back trouble as he's gotten older. Now he's fifty some odd years old now. And when I met him he he had just come fresh off of a back surgery. And uh and I don't want to drag this out but at the end of the day we had planned to go to Paris for New Year's, his wife and I, or excuse me, my wife and I and him and his wife. And you're tell uh, me more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh he he was going to scuttle the trip because he said he wasn't going to be able to sit on the plane for the 8-hour trip or whatever it was. And we, you know, we were like within a week from leaving. And uh, I talked him into coming to see me, and I did some work with him. I, you know, I actually um, put him in my—I have a, a canopy, a pneumatic canopy over a treadmill—and got him moving, and you know, did some stretches on him and help him loosen things up. And short story is, he he got through it. We went to Paris, and when he came home, I convinced him to run. And he kept arguing with me that he couldn't do it because of these pre-existing conditions: his back, his knee, his you know whatever. Mm-hmm. And I got him running, and then eventually I got him running into minimal shoes, and not minimal shoes, but uh, relatively zero-drop shoes. At the end of the day, uh, he got into doing too much too soon, and and this incidentally is after running a few marathons. He's done some races and and. Uh, He just uh, didn't do much in the way of stretching, didn't do much in caring for his feet. His feet were pretty troubled anyway. But now he's had this plantar fasciitis, and it's been bugging him since probably November. He has not run a step since probably mid-November. And he's still complaining that he's got this plantar fasciitis. Right. And I keep trying to convince him that he needs some deep tissue work. He needs to get up that – he needs somebody to get in and start finding these hot spots and start releasing his adhesions. And he needed to start rolling his feet and and working on it and maybe even some taping techniques, things like this. And we get him back in the game. And. Apparently, some podiatrist is trying to stick him into some orthotics and trying to keep him off of his feet and putting him in thick-soled shoes, and the problem's not going away. So I'm hoping he's going to listen to what you're going to say next.
1: Uh, when you look at a case like this, I mean, in a lot of cases, when we start out, we, the way our strategy is, there's common things that are involved in this condition. But when you have somebody who has had something going on for this long, you need to take him through some testing, and you need to see... Uh, you know what's going on in the bigger kinetic chain? So when you do this uh, in, in our book We've got a number of self tests to go through and some of the first things I would do is I'd help them go through and you know Check check some basic things first thing you need to take a look and ch- check for ankle mobility See how well he's dorsiflexing. I mean this is such a common thing people have restrictions there and They don't even realize that they're having a problem uh, next thing we need to go through and take a look at uh, big toe mobility in terms of pushing off, I'm sure you're well aware of the gait stance, how important the big toe is in terms of push off. For a lot of people, they have restrictions in this joint in conjunction with ankle restrictions. So that's probably one of the first things we see. And if we found positive um, tests in this, in other words, they had a problem in this area, we'd start to build a program based off of the individual. And that's the key thing here is that you can come up with a series of exercises and a person will have Ten people have plantar fasciitis, but if we don't come up with the right exercises and the right areas to basically increase flexibility in some areas or strengthen other areas, you know, we're going to run into problems here. Uh, So there'll be a whole series of different tests we go through. Now, you mentioned that um, quite often people want to be thrown into orthotics. And, um, you know, orthotics can be great, but we have to make sure that we actually need them. What I found really interesting is that we went through and we actually tested him to see Uh, not just how weak his hips are, but to see if there's an imbalance between left and right side. Uh, I end up treating a lot of uh, athletes at the University of Calgary, different people in track, and it's interesting. Some of these are actually at Olympic level. And when we start working with people I mean these people are are training at unbelievable levels and still when I test them I see imbalances left right side I see all sorts of problems and weakness it's not as if they're not working out all the time it's just that you know they have an imbalance on one side so if I see that and they do specific exercises to strengthen certain areas then 50% of the abnormal motion of their foot will go away to get back to your orthotics that means that you know if you throw a person in your orthotics right away you don't really know whether they need them or not. And not only that, you're actually putting them into a position that was only viable when they had a weak hip. So it, it's, a, it's a really big thing. Now, as we work through the body and we start testing different things, as I said, we're going to work up the whole kinetic chain here. We're going to work and make sure that, you know, that they have flexibility in their hamstrings. Uh, we're going to test their hip flexors. A, a really common test in orthopedics is called a Thomas test, which tests the length of the hip flexor. If the hip flexor is short and contracted, it's a really important thing. I get back to that whole analogy between the bicep and the tricep and the thing about reciprocal inhibition, because if your hip flexors from, as you mentioned, you know, sitting down for a long period of time, uh, if someone's sitting, their hip flexors usually get short and contracted, same as triathletes on the, on, they're sitting on the bike for a long time. That will literally neurologically turn off the glute muscles so that they will not be as strong, they will be able to extend that well. And so what happens is if we, if we look at somebody and say, you know, I've got weak hips, but I just prescribe hip-strengthening exercises without hip, stretching out the hip flexors, they'll actually get weaker. So we start working through the whole body, we start doing analysis, and we start building a program at something specific to the individual where, you know, you end up taking through a lot of different areas. Another thing that we also do is kind of look at the pattern of pain the individual is experiencing. Not everyone with plantar fasciitis has the pain in the same area. Some of the front of the foot, the back of the foot. Uh, Some people have interesting pain in that it seems to follow a nerve pathway. So sometimes it's not just a matter of uh, the local areas that are being affected, but we could have problems with nerve compression in an area. So after we come up with a, we do functional tests, we'll go back and we'll say, Okay, let's put together a program here, and then we'll get the individual on that program, and then we need to tweak it as we go along.
0: Okay, so uh, i I am absolutely on page with what you're saying, uh, and I, I think it's really important what the the point you made about you know, developing hip strength, but you're having inhibition because your hip flexors are so locked up, you're not really going to engage those glutes, which was what the original uh, exercises was intended to do. So, So the ABCs of it is you have to release that tension in the hip flexor in order to get access to the glutes, right?
1: Right. Uh, Now, that's just the glutes we're talking about. I understand. We're talking about the calf or the shin. We're talking about the difference between the quad and the hamstring, the hip flexors and everything above and below that point with the glutes too because it also applies farther up the erector spinae um, it, it's really quite amazing when you start looking at the entire body as one functional integrated unit i was at uh, a fascial conference at the university of amsterdam and i was talking to one of the uh, speakers there and uh, he was telling me about he said brian it's really interesting how we teach this dumbed down version of anatomy and how with the connective tissue, uh, when you pick up an anatomy book and you look at it, he calls it an anatomical fantasy because they removed all the connective tissue. They removed everything that's integrated into the muscles just so to make it easier for students. But this is, this is really a travesty in a lot of ways because if we look at things such as neurological receptors, over the na- last number of years, we've found that there are more neurological receptors in fascia than there are in muscle. So we can either look at the, the body and say, okay, we've got 600 different muscles surrounded by uh, connective tissue, or we have one functional structure in 600 bags of fascia, and everything is linked, both physically and neurologically.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's a really important point to make. And so in order to get the, in, in, I get you know you mentioned it earlier. You're talking about these agonists versus the antagonists. Yes. Es- essentially, both both sides of the chain, so to speak. You, you need to create some, some, some balances, and, and I agree with you. I think that this, people that are incapable of dorsiflexing their ankle um, are going to load their calves more heavily. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And so that would probably be why they present with pain when you get in and start digging around their calf muscle. And, and I know I've had success myself where... I've I've had somebody come to me complaining that they couldn't run because they're you know they're having either issues with a heel spur, plant, uh, Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, and start digging in their calves and and almost gather immediate relief um, from having you know offered up that work.
1: Yes, yes.
0: As a matter of fact, on Saturday we were running down the Pacific Coast Highway and. Uh, fellow that's a much better runner than I am was pretty far ahead, and as I started to approach him, uh, we were running down the road. He was walking, and I said, what happened? He says, I just can't run. He says, my, my, my calf's locking up on me, and you know I'm really concerned. I'm going to have a problem with my Achilles. And I, I literally uh, took my jacket off, folded it up, and had him put his leg up on a post on the side of the, the road and started uh, running my, my elbow down the side of his tibialis, Mm-hmm. And, and he said that I reduced the pain by 90% and was able to run back.
1: That's quite amazing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really was, because he had no idea that that the potential of the culprit was coming from the front of his leg.
1: That's such a common thing. I had a patient who uh, I came to see me just before Boston, and uh, actually bilateral Achilles Problems and uh, basically just coming to see me as a last resort, but no one had touched the shins. And as soon as I started to release the shins, uh, almost immediately she started to get changes and uh, ran the race successfully. And it was it, it really helped.
0: So, what are your thoughts on uh, kinetic tape and you know, what types of uh, procedures do you like to use? When, when you see the, the, and I realize that uh, everybody's relatively unique in regards to the culprits behind the outcome, m- meaning plantar fasciitis, but do you use any kinetic tape strategies in conjunction with, with some of the uh, exercises you do? Um,
1: I will sometimes, especially when a person has a hard time even doing the exercise to break the pain cycle. I, I think it's a, a great strategy just to enable the individual to be able to perform actions. It's kind of in the same way that I use acupuncture. I I use acupuncture in conjunction with what I do to reduce the amount of pain in an area, uh, to reduce stress on the area, but the taping or the acupuncture or some of the other therapies uh, they won't break up scar tissue. You need, you need to get in there with your hands sometimes and really dig around and get relative motion between the tissue. One thing I, uh, I'll start to do perhaps active release or myofascial release or some of the other where I'll combine patient motion with the work, just because uh, that's the only way we're going to get any long term changes. I think taping is a great tool. Don't get me wrong, and I think it really helps a lot of people perform at a higher level. But if you have scar tissue in an area or you have an imbalance or a problem with strength, obviously the uh, the taping is just going to be one part of that continuum in terms of what you're going to advise the patient to do.
0: Okay. So in your book, I noticed that there was a, a quite extensive approach to, um, I guess we're going to call it myofascial release. Yes. Uh, in regard to the foot. So I see you using like a lacrosse ball. Uh, and, in some cases, a tennis ball. right? And it's, I know it's difficult for people to to appreciate what what I hope to have you do, uh, given that it's audio versus video. <laughs> and and I, and I think it's important to also point out that within your book, you have a lot of references to videos that you have posted on YouTube that were actually very, very uh, very good to watch. But can you give a sense of what an approach might be? Because I know there's people listening to this or going to be listening to this that are going to be looking for some self-help. And uh, I I would imagine that almost regardless of what the circumstance might be, um, some of this uh, beneath-the-foot myofascial release is probably a good approach.
1: Well, it is. And this book that I've written is a self-help book. I do make recommendations at the end of the book with different practitioners in terms of you know what strategy you could use if you're not finding relief in an area but basically we've divided this up into three phases and the first phase of the book are the common things that we see with cases of plantar fasciitis and as you mentioned calf muscle restrictions the shins under the foot different different areas so we'd have a person go through and we have them do what we call our foundational routine and so they do very specific stretches myofascial release, as you said, with a lacrosse ball. The tennis ball is not really hard enough. It's more just to warm up the foot and get the, you know, some blood flow, a little bit of malleability in the foot, and then taking the uh, lacrosse ball, getting in there, and not just going back and forth in circles, but making sure that we're you know, going for the front, the back, going the basically the line of tissue runs from the toes to the heel, so we have to make sure we're going perpendicular to that, so we actually create a sheer uh, force across there to help break up restrictions but uh, we have them go through you know most days and and actually several times a day stretching myofascial release strengthening no more than three days and what we found in terms of our process of exercises that by far the majority of people will get to the point where they're not really um, feeling much from this condition in in about four weeks if they're at a point where they've improved maybe 70 to 80 percent we've had them move on and, and do this for a couple more weeks but if they don't see those results then we start going through all the testing we talked about now to get back to your question in terms of, of the foot there th- there's a lot you can do to break it up and we combine videos with this because we live in a visual world and you really you know even though you put something down and you show an exercise in the area there's little nuances which are critical for getting over this condition and, and like i said in terms of the position that you're rolling uh, whether we're doing myofascial release uh, in certain areas for example we get to the calf muscle And we say, okay, I'm going to release this. Well, if you start using the foam roll, it really doesn't work that well on the calf. But if you take a softball, not a baseball, and use it to roll around and also create shear force, you can easily release some of these restrictions. So there's a tremendous amount you can do for this condition. And by far, the majority of people can resolve this. But I have people that come in and they've had this for a long, long period of time. But the problem is usually that they've only been looking locally, and they're considering that every case of plantar fasciitis is the same, and it's not. It has to do with the individual and specific recommendations for that individual. Uh, generic cookbooks don't work very well for this condition.
0: Well, and it's interesting that you, you, you speak of uh, the unique nature of the individual and the circumstances that they're facing, because, and in, in, I might be wrong. Um, but I, I don't think I am. Uh, I, over the course of probably the last 10 years where I've had people that come to me with running-related injuries, and incidentally, I'm not a therapist, and I don't portray to be a therapist, but people come to my sports performance business because they're hurt. Right. And they're not finding any resolve through their traditional, traditional uh, paths. Uh, for example, they might go see... Uh, an orthopod for an knee issue, and he identifies there's inflammation, sends them to physical therapy, physical therapist uh, releases the pain, and they go back to making the same uh, mistakes they were making that caused the injury to begin with. Mm -hmm. So they end up coming to me to try to resolve the problem that was uh, at the heart of their injury to begin with. But but where, where I'm going with this is that I'll see people come to me where, They'd literally come to me with a bag full of orthotics that they've gone through. And... The same thing happens in my clinic. And, well, yeah, and I'm looking at it like I don't really see much difference in the uh, construction of the orthotics. I'd have 50 different problems that might come for 50 different reasons, but the result... Uh, of the orthotic is is structurally the same. It's almost like I say, hey, before you even take it out of your shoe, let me tell you what it looks like. And I would think that the the, the structure of the orthotic should be unique to the individual problem.
1: Oh, it has to be custom fit. It's kind of funny. It's kind of, yeah. I mean, they're basically achieving the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results.
0: Exactly right. Yeah. So and again, so I've been on this rant and I keep pulling you back into it with me, but. I'm almost Bible-thumping about getting people to take responsibility for the way they move and then learning to, you know, to develop a synergistic approach, you know, so that they don't develop these imbalances and they don't develop all this scar tissue. Or, or I, I'm sure that, you know, you push yourself hard enough, you're going to break things. But at the same token, you can minimize the amount of stress your body has to take in order to achieve the end.
1: Oh, it's, it, it's huge. You know, I've no doubt that uh, technique is paramount in terms of avoiding these conditions. And uh, But even with the best technique, sometimes there'll be imbalances. Sometimes there are certain factors we can't – it could be overtraining. It could be running on, as you say, on uh, uneven surfaces, whatever it may be. And then the occasional analysis to see where you're at, kind of to check in with your body, I think, is critical. So at on one hand, they have to, you know – see if they've developed any poor habits in terms of technique on the other hand doing a, a more general screen and just seeing if there's something uh, whether we're talking about running or golf or any sport or it uh, could be bobsledding it whatever it may be uh, we have to check in and see you know what how the technique is but at a individual level have you started to develop imbalances or a decrease in strength or are you having problems in terms of flexibility or is there joint restrictions in the area
0: Well, you know, it's interesting since you brought it up. I I think it's uh, important to point out, and and I I don't know what your take is on it, but I'll share my thought, is um, I was listening to, I think it was Dr. Noakes, who made a comment about – uh, the central nervous system going into get in front of you making mistakes. So in other words, let's just say that my goal was I'm trying to get in 90 miles worth of running this week and my body's capable of 60. Right. Everything between 60 and 90, my body is not functioning properly. And you're, you would almost find that you will be brought to heel striking because neurologically your body's trying to stop what's 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 hurting it. It's trying to put the brakes on to keep you from furthering the the damage. That makes sense. Yeah, so makes you, sense. you you may very well be running with good mechanics for the first sixty miles, and because your mindset was you needed to get in the ninety miles, which you probably don't don't need or your body wasn't prepared for, you put 30 miles worth of damage into your body, and then this is where that whole pain cycle and issues start to really de- result.
1: Right. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I actually treat quite a few ultra-marathoners, and uh, except I'm not talking about uh, the uh, mileage over a week. I'm talking about their mileage over some training
0: runs. <laughs> I know. I know. It's and
1: crazy. they start to fall apart completely. First, the first 30 miles were great, but the last 60 were pretty rough.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, we did a test uh just, I mean, it was kind of an experiment and it, uh, it's almost irresponsible of me to do it, but I did it anyway. I have a client that has been com- complaining about a lot of issues and she's relatively uh heavy for her for her uh height. Uh not a very big girl, so you know, like 4'10 and carrying a little bit more weight than she should. And, uh, you know, I said, it seems like no matter what we do, you always seem to have problems. I said, why not, instead of backing off, let's speed it up. And I ended up having her run 105 miles in six days. (laughs) Wow. And what was interesting about it, because she had very good running mechanics, she was no worse for wear than she was when she was running 30 miles a week. Interesting. It was interesting. And, you know, the what was, I mean, it's kind of off on a tangent, but one of the outcomes that we found was because of that huge amount of volume that she put in, her heart rate relative to the work she was doing dropped by about 20 beats per minute on average. That's impressive. Yeah, after a week's worth of training, you know. So it goes to show you that the base work really does work if you put the time in. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, so it's kind of off topic here. Oh,
1: yes, yes and no I think it's it's, it's actually a really good point that uh, in, in terms of training and technique and position and how it's going to affect both the cardiovascular and your your nervous system and all these feedback mechanisms and it would be interesting to check res- respiratory function too mm-hmm.
0: well, yeah you know and I and i I, I do that kind of work and, and i I just didn't put. You know what? I Instead, we did is we, we decided to smoke a Cuban cigar and have a martini after the 105 miles.
1: Yeah, that worked too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway, um, getting back to the plantar fasciitis, we're talking yeah. about uh, um, you know some of the self-help techniques and the fact that your book points out very uh, eloquently these uh, videos. And I, I again, I applaud you for bringing people away from the book into a video to to see. How to do these these exercises? I think that's a really good uh, approach because I know just trying to explain to people what they should be doing is not nearly as easy as showing them what they should be doing.
1: No, definitely. And, and also, Richard, uh, you have a copy of my book in hard copy, but there's also a e version coming out. And each of the uh, exercises on there will be linked directly to the video, where they can just click on it'll take them directly to it. And we really produce this more as a online help system, whereas a lot of e-books are are sort of like a PDF where you basically have to flip through and you don't. You you should might as well be on a hard copy. This way, it's totally indexed and with every exercise going directly to the video, whether it's a biomechanical test or whether uh, it's an exercise. So yeah, I I think the um, uh, to see what the individual is doing to is critical.
0: So one of the other things that you do that I think is unique, the first time we spoke, I sought you out because I was really intrigued by the neural flossing exercises you Yes,
1: were doing. yes, yes.
0: And so you bring that back to light again here. And can you kind of expound on what a neural flossing exercise is? Because I thought it was fascinating, and I think it's something that most people would not consider when they're trying to go through a stretching exercise.
1: No. And if we go back to the plantar fasciitis, a lot of people don't realize sometimes that the pain they're experiencing is indicative of a particular nerve pattern. We know that down the back of our legs, well, first of all, the sciatic nerve comes down and then it bifurcates into the peroneal and tibial nerve. Well, sometimes we have pain in the foot, which is directly indicative of nerve compression on one of those nerves. So when we do a nerve flossing exercise, we're basically, we're doing an exercise in a way so that we can release that nerve and get it moving through the tissue. So we basically take the body in particular positions, and then when we're doing the flossing component, we pull the nerve in one direction. We perform actions in the body to do so. After a while, when we get a little bit of motion within that nerve, we would alter the exercise slightly so we can actually tension the nerve. So it's kind of like, Pulling on some linguine. At one point, we're trying to pull it in one direction, which is representative of the nerve moving through the tissue. Later on, we pull it from both directions so we can actually get even better motion of that nerve. As we take the compression off the nerve, we see a change in function. It, you only need about the pressure of a dime on a nerve to decrease neurological function uh, to about uh, 50%, and that, that is huge because that is directly going to f- affect your ability to perform an action, uh, never mind the pain and the sensory changes. It, it, it will literally change your ability to be faster, quicker. I mean, obviously, the best athletes in the wor- world are the ones that can recruit more of their nervous system.
0: Yeah, I, I really did think that was fascinating stuff, and, and uh, specifically, I was d- trying to achieve this exercise for hip flexion. in talking about the femoral nerve loss? Yes, 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 and I found that to be very, very uh, effective. So I want another another point. Again, we're still, still kind of dealing with the, the facial issues, but uh, what are your thoughts about heating in preparation for exercise when you're going through some of this uh, facial movement patterns? Do you, do you think it's a good idea, like, to put damp heat or anything like that on a, on a region? Yeah, and
1: I think so. I think that uh, uh, getting more malleability into the tissue is a very good thing. I and mean, We start getting back to that whole thing about heating and icing, and obviously if we can get uh, – A little bit of heat in the area it's going to free it up but also afterwards i'm I'm always recommending uh people put heat on there so that we can uh, increase blood flow get fluid exchange in there but also so i'm not inhibiting uh the process of inflammation which is a very positive thing as you're probably well aware get a little bit of inflammation, cells start coming in to clear out the debris, the macrophages. Um, About a day later, we get the secondary macrophages come in. They start dumping out what we call insulin-like growth factor. And and right away, we start getting the regeneration of new tissue. So if you're heating all the time, you're not just freeing it up and getting the tissue more malleable for training, but you're also speeding the repair process so the person can go back to their activity much faster.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because a, a lot of people... Uh, and, and I'm going to include myself, have been led to believe that ice, where inflammation is concerned, is more appropriate. But I, I have read on many occasions that to ice too often too soon inhibits the potential for healing.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think we were all taught, you know, the rest ice compression elevation and uh, immediately within 24 to 72 hours and of course i, I agree that if it was right after an injury injury and uh, i'm dealing with a pumpkin ankle or something that it's appropriate to use ice to try and get it down as much as you can with compression a compression sock whatever, whatever you can do but in most cases you don't need ice heat is a much better approach in my opinion
0: so I'm going, to go, I'm going to take you way off course here for a sec because it just occurred to me where we're talking about uh, compression. I was taken uh, where I was invited to go to the Bahamas for an obstacle race a few months ago. Right. Uh, it was a $50,000 purse. So it was pretty much all pros uh, that were on this show.
1: So you won the race yourself. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I was there uh, basically to present and to, uh, you know, play games with the guys. But basically, one of the pros was going through this this uh, ritual that he goes through where he had this uh, length of uh, rubber strip, almost like a bicycle inner tube but flat, uh, probably uh, three, three and a half inches wide and uh, probably about three feet long. And he began at his left ankle and wrapped his his lower leg very tightly with this wrapping the thing, up the chain, like from the ankle up towards the knee, mm-hmm. and leaving it on real tight for a little bit, then going further up his leg, all the way up his thigh, and then uh, the other leg, then up the arm. And he had this this ritual, and he said, he goes, I'm, I'm flushing lactate out. I said, you did this? no, you're not. <laughs> I said, yeah. no, you're not. But what, have you seen this type of practice before? Do you do you see that there's any type well,
1: of It's interesting you mention that. I had someone else who actually, it was a bit of a different technique, and they were talking about lactate and things, and I thought, similar to you, there's no way. (laughs) And I thought, on the other hand, I thought, okay, this individual is actually doing extremely well in performance, but I'm sort of wondering whether or not it was the technique they were using or because they believed that the technique worked. So I I think it probably helps to reduce their stress levels and help them psychologically. Physiologically, I'm not so sure.
0: Well, I thought it was dangerous, to be honest with you. I started thinking of the potential for clotting.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. You
0: you know, I mean, oh, gosh, I don't know. It's just like I said, first of all, there's no metabolic consequences uh, uh, involved in what you're doing. If anything, you're creating a hypoxic state in that region. There's no way you're going to be, you know, know, know. encouraging the release uh, of lactic acid. Uh, anyway, so it, it, anyway, for whatever it's worth, but I think you're right. It was psychosomatic. I, I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that he just believed that this was helping, so it helped. Correct. So I, I just wanted to get your take on it because I don't think I shared that uh, that thought with anyone other than you know him when I when I and I'm not going to even throw him under the bus, but we're talking about a world class uh, obstacle racer that was doing this.
1: I'd like to see some studies on that one. I think they'd all be showing that it would lead to high levels of injury and other problems, but anyways.
0: Yeah. All right, so now everyone that's listened to this show has got a pretty good handle on what they should be thinking about, hopefully, when they're starting to develop these problems. Um, Is there a point in the road where you feel that You need to seek help I mean is what would be the uh, the warning shot when you start to run into these problems and you need to see medical profession
1: well obviously you know if we're dealing with you know certain things are obvious I mean obviously if we're dealing with an acute injury and we have sharp pain I mean obviously sometimes we have to rule out that nothing more serious is going on Uh, you know pain that is not exhibiting mechanical properties uh, mechanical properties exhibit sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. It, it gets better with change of position. Uh, th- these are all signs and symptoms that say, you know, if, if something is there and you've got a nine out of ten, and it doesn't change no matter what. It doesn't change in the morning, evening. It's just always there. Then, you know, you, you've got you got to question what's going on here. Obviously, if we've got, you know, an incredible amount of swelling and sharp pain in an area, or there's something that may give you an indication that something underlying is happening that just doesn't make sense. You've got foot drop, or we've got some major nerve compression in some way, so we've lost all feeling in our foot. I mean, I'll go see a practitioner right away. These, these are all red flags.
0: What, all, what would be the thing never to do when you're running into this kind of problem on your own?
1: To never to do if you have those signs and symptoms? Just yeah. Keep pushing through. I mean, that would that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> go, go see somebody. Get this looked at. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, I know. I just uh, there. You see all these uh, these remedies that, that people take. What, what do you think about the socks that people are using in, at night to to p- force themselves into dorsiflexion?
1: You know, sometimes I'll get a patient that is having such a problem they there's no way they could put their foot down on the ground in the morning and no matter what they do they've tried everything they, for whatever reason they just can't put their foot down I think it is a good way to reduce the pain to a point so you're not tearing the tissue every time you put your foot down in the morning so it may help short-term but it's just and a junk you do in conjunction with everything else. It will not take away from the stretching, from the strengthening exercises, myofascial release. There has to be a combination. That's why I love to take a multidisciplinary approach. You know, everything's on, everything is on the table, but the right thing at the right time.
0: Yeah, I love that approach. I love the fact that you're, you're looking at various approaches to treatment as opposed to locked into one process. No, one, one
1: size does not fit all. No. <laughs>
0: Well, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know you got patients coming in. Uh, I want to make sure that everybody knows that the best way to find your book would be releaseyourbody.com, and if they want to connect with you directly, they can do it through kinetichealth.ca. It's, I think that's the website to your... That's our, that's
1: our clinic site.
0: Exactly. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show, uh, Rich. I really do appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure. So let me ask you before we go... What are your thoughts on uh, sharing a book to one of our listeners?
1: Oh, I'd be more than happy to. All
0: right. Well, I'm going to post a little bit of a contest when I put the show up. And when I do, uh, I'll give you a shot and let you know where that book needs to go. All right. Listen, enjoy your day, buddy. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.